Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I've been calling the U.S. home for the last 20 years. When it comes to Latinos in the U.S., we are 60 million people, but we're only 3% of the workers in science or engineering. As a professional in Silicon Valley, I've had the opportunity to meet some remarkable professionals that work in the tech industry, Latinos like me. With this podcast, I want to bring you a collection of their stories and how they got a job in tech in the first place. And if they had to start all over again, what would they do differently? I want to share with you career advice on how to get a job in tech, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to find your tribe when you're the only one in the room. This is Latinos Who Tech. This episode of Latinos Who Tech is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's premium platform for audiobooks with over 150,000 titles. If you're like me, you're passionate about learning new things, but finding the time to read may be difficult. Audiobooks are a great alternative. You can get a free 30-day trial plus a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash latinos. Go and support them since they support us. Thank you. Yuri Ramirez, welcome to Latinos Who Tech. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I've been wanting to do this one for a while because uh, you are one of the few people, I think you're the only person I know that has a PhD and an MBA at the same time. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I am originally from Puerto Rico, went to school at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayagüez, graduated with a bachelor's from industrial engineering. After that, I went to Wisconsin, Madison, and I did a master's and PhD and I completed the MBA there. So the story with that is uh, I went to Wisconsin to complete a PhD. At that time, I needed to do a minor, and I always wanted to be that person that, yes, it was an engineer, but knew what the implications of the business were. And I started taking business classes to complete that minor. It was pretty cool. I liked it a lot, and I ended up taking a lot more classes about it, even though I didn't need them. And at some point, I was like, man, maybe I can get a degree out of this, right? So I ended up uh, finishing an MBA there, and I figured that, you know what, this won't help me right now get a job because I was, I had just two years experience and it was, it's, it was pretty raw and no one was going to hire me for an MBA manager job. But I figured, you know, five years on the line when I'm looking for a job, this may be a differentiating factor, right? And at the very least, it captures the people's attention. They ask, uh, uh, hey, I mean, why or how? And um, I feel that it's actually a very integral part of who I am because I am a person that I looked at the engineering details, but also tried to elevate it to what the business impact is. And to be honest, a lot of that, it's a lot easier to sell that mm -hmm. when you say you have, I mean, the background and the education just versus, hey, I just think that way. So it has helped me in some ways, not that I've gotten a job because I'm an MBA, but I feel in the way that I execute the job, it just is just part of me. So, so it helps me that way. Yeah, because you have because I see an MBA as having this uh, toolbox that you can almost like Batman, like the, like the utility belt yeah. with all these tools. So you can reach out to them. Oh, we need to do forecasting. I know how to do that. 
oh, we need to do product marketing. I know how to do that. So that's kudos to you. That's amazing. And I think uh, it's always the question of depth versus breadth, right? And I see the engineering degree as having a lot of depth. Then I see the MBA as having a lot of breadth. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so something deep maybe, I mean, when you go to very technical talks, they are going into not just we need this bridge to be strong. No, we need this bridge to have this torque, I mean, this mass, this very detailed things that you're wondering sometimes, man, does that matter? Yeah, it matters at the engineering level, right? Then the breath comes into, okay, so now that the bridge is good, right? And there's a lot of engineering behind that. What do we do with it, right? What problem does it solve? How can I leverage that? Can I make money out of it? So all those are things that I associate a lot more with breath. And that's where the business influence comes on. And uh, you get this even in stereotypes, right? You get the marketing folks like to talk a lot about the engineers, about how they <laughs> do so much that really is not going to sell stuff. And then the engineer folks are talking about the marketing guys. It's like, well, they just want to market this and they don't really care how this works or why it works yeah. this way, right? Uh, so they just talk pretty and they, yeah. make, uh, they make cool looking presentations. Exactly. But, uh, and the truth is that it's a little bit of both, right? You need a good product in order to market it pretty well. And it's just different roles. We need the engineers to do good engineering yeah. and we need the marketing guys to do good, good marketing. Now, in between, ideally, you need someone that can translate all that, mediate, and actually look at some engineering thing and say, hey, that there's value there. And maybe a marketing person may not see that value, but you with background in engineering can see it. And now is your role to translate that so that the marketing folks see it. And now it's a very good value proposition, right? So it is something very needed. I mean, the people that can bridge the gap between engineering and the business world, it's very important, right? And uh, a lot of people make careers out of that. There is actually a, a program, what I did the MBA, it's, a, it's OTM, it's called Operations and Technology Management. And it's kind of like that. It's a bridge between engineering and uh, business. I work actually, I'm in the board for the University of Portland in one of those programs. And I think it's very important. It's not a PhD program. It's not an MBA program, but it is the bridge between engineering and business. And I think we need a lot of that. Yeah, because ultimately, you don't only want to build the product. You also want to hopefully sell it to a lot of people so you can reinvest that gain back into the company, the organization. The... But I'm wondering, because you're a technical program manager um, at Intel. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about that role. And because I hear like technical program manager and I hear like project manager. Is that the yeah. same? Is that different? Like uh, what does a TPM do? I'll go on the t uh, program versus project in a minute. But uh, I joke with people that uh, a program manager is one of those roles that can vary from being someone's assistant to almost running the show. It depends a lot of who you work for. And it depends a lot on what you make out of that role. If you take a step back and you let things happen and you're just transferring information or taking minutes, uh, things like that, that's one part of the role. But you can be an influencer. You can bring ideas. You can drive them and execute them. Things that sometimes some VPs do, <laughs> right? Exactly. But you're doing them as a program manager. But you need to feel empowered by your manager 
to do that. So they don't say, hey, why are you going to this VP without my authorization, right? So you need the right environment to be a good program manager. But in my particular role, I do different things from running initiatives, meaning that there's an idea, let's say enhance productivity of our organization. And now we have to do a strategy for that and implement that. So one example, when I came into this job, we were really high on the autonomous driving and mm -hmm. things like that. And I came in and uh, the job that I do or the, the group I work with, basically they built software so that the software developers could optimize Intel hardware, right? So the Intel hardware, it's a ship that uh, it is what it is. Now the software developers pass code through it and it goes at a certain speed. How can they change that? They use our software and the software says, hey, your software is creating these problems in the hardware. If you change it this way, it will run faster. So they run this kind of like a debugger and they change their code. And now it runs faster. So I come into this team and they have all this software, five platforms. I ask my manager, so who owns autonomous driving? And he says, well, autonomous driver, part of it is owned by this product, part of this product, part of this product, and part of this product, because the five products do different things. Yeah, but who owns autonomous driving to make sense, to make sure that all that yeah, kind of makes sense. program, right? Because yeah. you don't want to have duplicated efforts. Or, or even how, how they complement each other. So we came up with a strategy of, okay, we need an owner of autonomous driving. And that will be someone from these five teams that will make sure that things are aligning. So they will create their own forum or meeting in which they are going to be talking to each other. And if there is a big change or in strategy or something that they want to do, they have to bring it to that forum, get it approved and then execute. And we did that for like five initiatives. And that's what we call kind of uh, horizontal integration versus the vertical that would have been the team or the, the products. And that created big, big optimization in the team and things uh, run a lot smoother. So that's an example of a big initiative that my manager said, can you do this? And we executed. And that as a program manager, my role is to talk to the stakeholders, which a lot of times they are a lot more senior than me and convince them that this is the right thing to do or get them to do the, <laughs> the, the right thing. And that's part of the skill. How do you talk to those folks without them seeing you across as someone junior trying to tell them what to do. It's part of what you develop. Uh, I mean, it's how you ask. It's uh, sometimes convincing them that the idea is kind of more them <laughs> than yours. For me, it's a very interesting role. You can mold it many different ways. There are some times that I'm doing presentations for my manager, right? So he says, hey, we need to address this topic. And part of my job is to create something that is at least 80% ideally of what it should be. And then he goes in and tweaks it. And that's when he may have to do keynotes or things like that. Or sometimes we need to address our organization quarterly. So I help him with that. And many other initiatives. Now I'm working and creating different conferences where we can promote our products. So like internally, get people aware of all the things you're doing, or do you mean externally? Internally like customers? and externally. That's oh, a great, that's great point, actually, because one of the key things that we established there was that a lot of our customers or people that use our tools are external, but actually a lot of people are internal, the people that are building the platforms. So they want to use our tools so that they can optimize it before it even goes out in the market. And at some point we were kind of deprioritizing that because it were not real paying customers. 
right? So part of the other thing that I was asked to do was how, how do we change that culture? And we just started an internal customers forum, right? In which we brought in some of our main internal customers and have them explain how our tools impacted their product and actually some things that our tools were not doing good enough, mm -hmm. right? So all of a sudden it turned into, okay, we can improve our products and improving the products on this area would actually help us once the other external customers use it. Got it. But my question then is, um, how do you approach that uh, conversation with somebody? Because I see that you're talking about somebody's baby mm -hmm. and you're telling them, hey, your product is not doing that good. Maybe you can do this to optimize it, make it better. So how do you approach that conversation uh, without, you know, cost hurting the, the relationship? Yeah, well, so first the customers would approach it were say it to us, the internal customers, right? Meaning the uh, data center group. And I think that the saying of customers always right, right? Uh, you have to take it as I hear you and actually let's evaluate it. And also let's see this as an opportunity to make the product better, right? So part of what we try to tell our team is like, we need the criticism, right? Because we want to get better and we need actually to hear these things versus not hearing them. Yeah, yeah, because um, I think that's something key for, for building a successful culture, the fact that everybody is great at spreading good news. But something that my manager right now told me, and I believe deeply, is that good news should travel fast, but bad news should travel faster. Because, again, I'm not going to get mad at you because you're bringing that up. I'm not going to kill the messenger, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I want to have that that sentiment of we're in this together, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna penalize you because you're bringing something up. It's a cultural thing, and and it's really difficult to break. And uh, what we started hearing from manager was this concept of fail fast, right? But communicate it. So it's like yes, if something is not right, say it as soon as you know it, but don't wait until the last minute. And then say it because then it becomes a surprise. Yeah. And and we have a lot less time to deal with it. Yeah. So managing expectations is, is part of the job, right? So I'm wondering, because um, do you manage any people right now? Or That's interesting too, because uh, I joke with my daughter. I said uh, when I got this job, so what is your new title? It's like, I'm a technical program manager. Oh, cool. So how many people do you manage? Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> I, man I manage myself and I hopefully and you a little bit, yeah. uh, daughter. <laughs> but, but it's critical because actually I do a lot of uh, what is called matrix management, which means you have to manage a lot of people that are not reporting to you. So you have to manage by influence. And like I said, a lot of people are senior to you, but you still need things from them, meaning that they need to complete some tasks for your group and you need them to finish it but they don't report to you. So it's a little bit tricky because what is your leverage? Yeah, so so what's your leverage? How do you approach that? I have evolved on this uh, over time. Uh, a lot of times, uh, particularly at the beginning, was a lot of talking with them and convincing them why this was important. That's still valuable, right? But um, a lot of times in my previous years was escalation, which means that, okay, if you don't do it, I have to escalate it to your manager because I need it. That, in theory works, but it leaves us our taste. And 
it depends also how culturally accepted it is. Uh, in the division I was before, it was actually, there were so many escalations that it was not something completely out of line. Where I'm at right now, it's definitely something you shouldn't do unless you really, really tried to work it out with that person and told them ahead that I will have to escalate this if it doesn't come through. But what I have found that has been the most successful is that I tried to say it ahead of time, meaning that, hey, we need this information and this done in two months. Is that doable? And they will, most of the time, they would say two months. Yeah, sure. That's doable, right? If you ask for something for next week, most likely they'll say, yeah, I mean, that would be really tough. But you ask for something for here in two months and you say, okay, most of the time you need things from many people and you have to put it together. So you do a document in which everybody can edit, right? And they put their own information there and you say, okay, so we need it in two months. And then I set up and I tell them, we have a meeting with this VP in a week after that. So we are presenting and that meeting becomes a forcing function because they don't want to look bad in front of the VP, yeah. right? And they know it's scheduled already. So they will meet that deadline. And that becomes actually emotionally for me, it becomes a lot better because I don't have to bug people as much. And yes, if we need to move the meeting, we do it. But for the most part, it works. I leave it a week so we can massage it and have a pre presentation first, but they cannot have the excuse of I didn't have enough time because we set up this meeting two months right. ago. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the this idea of uh, finding your purpose, because uh, I know you've been at Intel for, well, like 13 years now. Yes. And how many jobs you've had within Intel that you can count off? You know what? It's interesting because my first job at Intel, it was, I don't know, facilities manager. Sometimes the titles don't even go with what it is, right? Yeah, no, I, that's uh, why I tell like my but, mentees, like all the job titles you see are, are made up. Yeah. And sometimes like the company's job title doesn't match what you do. So what you put in LinkedIn, it's totally up to you. At the end of the day, it's like, what skills are you using? What does the deliverable look like? That's a great point. But in the my first job, I basically was managing facilities at Intel. And it was probably a job that was way ahead what I should have gone on at the time, but I grew into it and then I continue. And we, we said that we operated into our own little islands <laughs> and, because, and I, I feel I was kind of almost like you own part of your a business division, mm -hmm. but you're a individual contributor, but your scope is so big that, I mean, we were building factories pretty much and mm -hmm. we were responsible or I was responsible for saying how big should some of the facilities be. I honestly was in that job for my first seven years. Now the scope increase, but technically the job was the same. The job title was the same, but the scope increased and increased and increased and increased to the point that I was like, hey, I need to drop some things and it didn't get to that point. So it was pretty exhausting and high stress and you don't realize it while you're in there. Yeah, we were talking about the frog earlier, Yeah, that it's sitting in the boiling pot and they don't realize it. If you raise the temperature, Little by little, you don't realize it, right? So work can be like that. And uh, now that I'm in a different role, I was like, wow, that was intense, <laughs> right? But yeah, finding the purpose is, is a great question because I say you can do something you're good at or something you're made up for. And 
to be honest, I, I'm doing something I'm good at. I don't know if that's what I'm made for. There are some times where good is good enough, right? I mean, could I find a better job? Probably. But this, as of right now, it's fulfilling some of the things and I'm good at it. So for now, it's okay, right? But finding a purpose is something that First, I don't even know if you ask yourself, honestly, what is your purpose? I don't even know if you know. I ask yeah. myself that, and sometimes I don't know. I, my yeah. philosophy is more, I may not know it, but I'll see it, I'll recognize it when I see it. Exactly. And um, and again, just a full disclosure, the reason why I bring this up is because, uh, well, we're recording this at the SHEP National Convention in 2019. And again, podcasts are forever, so maybe people in 2040 will be listening to this. So no pressure. So a young professional approached me and he asked me, Hugo, are you recording with Judy today? Yeah, I am. Oh, that's awesome. I really look up to him. And uh, yeah, he's just started. I didn't tell. And then he was asking me about like uh, finding your purpose and making sure that you're aligned with uh, what you want to do. I feel the same way. Like I don't look at it that way. I look at, I have a list of skills, things that I know I'm really good at. And I have a list of things that I, I want to learn. And again, things that I need to learn you know, to be better at my job. And then some things that I just hate doing. Uh, and those are the things that I try to delegate or yes. automate or, or, or what have you. But in the end, like the way that I, I found my, my dream job, if you will, is that I align this opening, this job, this opportunity with my strengths. So things like storytelling, public speaking. And I love my job because I get to do them every day. So to me, is, is that my purpose? I don't know, but I'm good at it and I feel really satisfied and growing. So I'm going to keep going at it. So and I'm going to keep adding value to people that way. So it's a different way of looking at it. It's tricky, right? I mean, it's like the other question is, should you do stuff if they are not your dream or should you just wait for the dream to show up and then do stuff? It's like yeah, different wait. people think different ways. I think you cannot just stay still. So you should do something even if it's not what you're 100% passionate of, as long as you don't hate it, right? Yeah. I have the concept of staying in shape and being within striking distance, right? So that when the right opportunity comes in, you can jump to it. Versus if you are in your bed and something comes in that says, okay, it may be too late. You may not have enough time, right? Yeah. So you have to stay active enough and that, to your point, in skills, in networking and all that, that if the right opportunity comes in, it doesn't take you too long to jump into it. Because by the time, if it takes you too long, by the time you're ready, the opportunity may be gone. And the other thing that I said, it's uh, sometimes your job may not fulfill all your needs, but you can find other ways to do that. For example, you're very active in the Latin community, right? And Intel is not paying you for that. But You do it on your own and Intel or the position you have right now allows you to do that. So within like the whole, you probably feel very fulfilled. I do. And, and again, if I went back the technical route as a, I got a job as a programmer and I was coding six, seven hours a day, I think I would start making even more podcasts because that way I would uh, satisfy my social need of talk to different people. So yeah, so there's a balance for sure. And in my case, I feel that I use some of the skills I have in my hobby and at work. And since I'm good at them and I enjoy them, it doesn't feel like work. 
Sometimes I stay up till one in the morning on a Sunday because, oh, guess what? I have a Monday episode to put out. And Monday morning, I'm groggy, but hey, coffee is free at work, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm sure you have learned some skills that you wouldn't have learned at work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like m managing multiple, multiple pipelines of uh, content and cold emailing people so yeah no definitely so and for example that i i say like with the employee resource groups right uh i'm active with the intel latinx network and i tell people you know you you can use this as a career growth opportunity too i do things in iln that i cannot do at my job mm -hmm. because in iln i have some good people or co-workers that I mean, we set up the vision, right? I can set the strategy. I have a budget. There are many things that I do not have that level of freedom in me, my particular role. So you are able to do some things. Imagine like, I mean, if you are a basketball player and you are in a company or in a team, they don't want you to shoot three pointers. And then you go to your volunteering team. There you can do that. And that you develop that skill in a way that later on you can go to your real team and say, hey, I have gotten much better at this. Give me a chance. And uh, I believe it has been very strong. And when we sat, tried to sell people in joining ILN as a board member, we tried to highlight that. This, hey, this is not just volunteering. This is growth. Find a position where you want to get better at. Let's say communications is a great example. Someone that doesn't have a lot of background in PowerPoint, hey, go to the communications team and learn about all that. And that may become an opportunity later on. So yeah, I believe things like this that you're doing right now, open your level of skills into areas that you wouldn't be able to do at work. Yeah, I agree a, a thousand percent. You need to have a, a hobby or volunteering, whether it's with your employee resource group, your affinity group at any company, or you know, a non-for-profit like like Shep, Society Hispanic Professional Engineers. We all have a a tribe, if you will. So the fact that you can fulfill that need of uh, meeting with people that talk like you, look like you, that you can learn from, more power to you. Switching gears a little bit, I was wondering if you could share with me, again, you know, a lot of the folks that listen to this, they like to switch jobs like every two, two to three years or so. So I'm wondering like what has kept you at Intel for, for this time? You know, what has driven you to build your career there? A great question because I tell a lot of people like, you know, if you had asked me when I graduated college, what would my life be like or what I would want it to be or what I thought it would be, I said, like, I would be traveling the world <laughs> in many different jobs. Right. And I would be just hopping a lot quite often. And it just happened that, that I ended up staying at Intel for 13 years. And it has been a combination of liking where you are in the area of Oregon. I have liked it there. Having a family and then having kids and then the kids going to school and maybe you <laughs> done not wanting it to switch disrupt. schools, exactly. yeah, disrupt. It happens that in Oregon, again, Intel is the biggest name in town. So I'm probably in the best company that I can be in that area. Now, if it were in the Bay Area, I could switch companies without disrupting a lot of those other things that uh, have kept me in Oregon, right? I also, three years ago, moved my parents, so to, uh, from Puerto Rico to Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I feel well, I'm not going to move now, let's say to California, 
after I moved my parents here, I would have to move them with me. And California is a little bit more expensive than Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we we have perfect weather, but uh, yes. we, pay, we pay for it. We yes. pay for it. So, but overall, I mean, I think it's every person has different circumstances. And what I tell people is, you know what? Whatever you do, as long as you have a reason and you can explain it, it's okay. The same answer or the same solution doesn't work for everybody and it's okay if yours is different yeah and some people are they appreciate the stability and some people appreciate the community uh, you have this deep network of folks at intel you know how things to get things done you know how to speak the language i guess like after five six seven years if it's almost like you're moving to a different country yeah when you join a different company at the same time you have to embrace change and sometimes if we stay too long in the same situation you forget about embracing change or you start fearing it. And to be honest, I didn't really change, like I said, jobs for the mm -hmm. first time. So when I thought in my year eight or so to switch even to a different part of Intel, it was a little frightening. It was like, man, I mean, can I do something new? When you're in college, you, you don't even think about that because you're, you are already doing many different things. Mm -hmm. You're having a, doing a class, then doing a different one. You are with change. But if you stay somewhere too long, it could be that that effect of the frog, right? But to be honest, once I switched, I felt this adrenaline rush of the learning and the new, and, and that was really powerful. So even if people change jobs two years, right? Some people may see that as, well, you're not, why are you switching jobs? You cannot stay with one thing. It's like, no, if you have a reason, right? Hey, I switched to this new thing. I learned it first year was a lot of learning second year i mastered it yeah. i want something new that's yeah. fine that's yeah that's your and, and then sometimes you know it's also the um, the economic reality is it's a big deal for some folks that hey i can stay at this company that's gonna give me a three percent raise every year but if i switch jobs i get a 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent raise that's a great point because actually what a lot of people say you know what the best way of growing in a company is to get out of the company and come back. <laughs> I heard that yeah. many, many times and I have seen people doing it. Yeah, so the economics are very important too. Yeah, and everybody has their own journey, right? So like, uh, I, I believe it's a, a chapter six. So it's the episode six of this podcast. We actually have a friend, uh, Juan Lopez Marcano, and he's a machine learning engineer and he doubled his salary in two years, switching companies. He worked at a startup for six months and he told me that Working in that startup environment basically accelerated his career uh, five years. Just being in that startup environment. So like he didn't have weekends for three months. He had to put himself through that gauntlet. But in the end, it paid off. And just so you know, he actually achieved something that uh, I mention it every time because I think it's very admirable. The fact that he moved his parents too from Venezuela to the U.S. He bought them a house in Florida and he just bought a house in California. And he told me, like, I wouldn't have been able to do this unless I had done this switching around because I wanted to provide to them. So it's a, it's a way of looking at things. So like, what's your purpose? What do you want to get out of it? What do you value? Again, everybody has their own journey. Yeah. And you know what? This, this is going a little back more than I was talking at a, a group uh, of, I don't know, like 500 kids in high school. And particularly with us Latinos, we feel we have to provide for our family, right? Yeah. So a lot of kids graduate and they decide not to go to college because they want to help their parents. Hey, I just need to get a job right now and, and help my family. And we had to just tell him, you know what the best way to help your family is? To go to college. Yeah. Because like you'll go to college mm -hmm. and you'll multiply by a 
factor of five to 10, what you can make, and then you can help them. That relates to that example you just said yeah. in the working environment. And it's different if you're going to move for a 3% increase, right? Yeah. But you're moving for a 20% increase on a $100,000 salary or more. It's a big difference. At the same time, it's it's very personal. If you decide, you know, even though I have that opportunity, I'm not taking it because I want to do X. As long as you're doing an informed decision, I think that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Just live your own journey, and you know. But again, you ha you gotta have an idea of what you like, what you're good at, and the things that you need to learn. So, Yuri, anything else you'd like to add to this audience of? Well, uh, uh, one thing that uh, you asked that I didn't address was the difference between program management and project management, mm -hmm. right? So this is one of those words that people use interchangeably <laughs> and yeah. they could mean many different things, right? So I'll give you my definition and what I have read and kind of ended up deciding. <laughs> so when you're talking about project management, it's at a little bit more of depth level, right? You're talking about milestones. You're talking about, let's say, getting a project on schedule and executing that project from start to finish. It's very centric on the project and making sure you get all those things right. Uh, when you're talking about program management, it's a little broader. You may have many different projects under a program, and also you may have a lot more influence on the strategy or how you're trying to achieve that, right? Yeah, uh, so like which project gets prioritized, which one gets like prioritized. Exactly. We're gonna finish this first before we do next. Or even how, let's say that uh, you have a diversity program, right? That's the bigger umbrella, how I like to call it. And then you have different sub-projects, which could be, okay, we want to match representation to the market. That is one project, right? And even within that project, there could be many different projects, right? But another part of the diversity program may be external engagement. So external engagement with the community, external engagements with the universities, right? So you're talking there like different projects and areas within a bigger umbrella. So that bigger umbrella is the program. Those smaller umbrellas under mm -hmm. are more projects. With that said, let's say you're looking for a program management role. When you're doing your search in LinkedIn or anywhere else, search also for project management because you want to first get the interview and then figure out with that employer, what does project management mean to you? What does program management mean to you? And then you'll be able to assess. I always recommend it is good to have project management experience before program management because you understand a little better of what does it take to get those projects done, uh, particularly software projects. One of those things that we talked about engineering and business is that when you're talking about engineering and management, they want things just to be done quick, right? They don't understand why it's taking so long, right? When you are at that project level with the software folks, you understand how things are interacting within each other, how you change a code in one side and it could have impacts on other yeah how yeah you're just moving data from one place to another maybe mm -hmm. hard maybe yeah you know. data validation even the agile process right how something could take longer or you the team may switch focus and you don't get that unless you're deep into the project uh, management part and knowing how that is handled will help you do that program management 
role better and explain to management better why things are delayed or why we cannot expand this scope to cover, let's say, two databases to three databases. Just, you'll be able to explain those things better than if you didn't have that experience. So hopefully that helps. <laughs> awesome. Yuri, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.